Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us here at Midweek. Glad that you've let us be part of your day. Hey, very happy to, this, always exciting news when we uh, add another affiliate to our Adams on Agriculture team. Um, we welcome today KOKX 1310 AM, Keokuk, Iowa. Glad to have you on board and very happy to be talking with folks uh, in that area. KOKX, Keokuk, Iowa. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Today, we're going to get more reaction to EPA's granting more RFS waivers. We're going to talk with Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, for his reaction. We're going to talk about trying to find other markets for U.S. soybeans with China out of play for the most part right now and maybe for the foreseeable future who knows how long this is going to go on between the u.s and china we're talking with jim sutter ceo of the u.s soybean export council where are they uh, focusing on what markets around the world we try to find enough to help uh, ease the pain of losing such a huge market in china we'll take a lot of other markets to make up for that we'll talk about whether or not that's even possible or how close can we get with Jim Sutter a little bit later. And then we have the latest ag equipment sales numbers out, and we'll talk with Kurt Blades with the Association of Equipment Manufacturers about those numbers. But we're going to start things off by talking about the news with Todd Neely from DTN. Todd, how are you? Oh, good, Mike. Glad to be here. Good to have you with us. Um, Been a lot going on with the Endangered Species Act. You've been writing about that. Give us an update. Well, yeah, Mike, you know, uh, back in 2017, President Trump had put out an executive order uh, calling on federal agencies to, to basically, uh, you know, deregulate, as they say. Um, but one of the things along the way that came up is, you know, we've had many years of an Endangered Species Act that's been uh, oftentimes confusing to farmers and ranchers and other landowners. Um, and so we had this week... Uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they finalized a number of changes to the act, you know, and this is something that's been uh, attempted over the years many times, whether it be by Congress, um, you know, or even other presidents, and, and nothing's really come of it, and this is probably the first uh, the first bit of changes that we've seen uh, since, the, since the act came to be in 1973, um, and one of the big things that came out of it this week was that uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service basically removed what they had a, a blanket rule that protected both uh, threatened and endangered species in the same way. Um, and the agency came out this week with the final rule that basically said we're going to tailor those protections um, uh, to threatened species based on their individual uh, conservation needs. Uh, and, you know, and that that really uh, that changes the game a little bit because. Uh, you know, the act hasn't been all that successful uh, since it was implemented. Uh, we've only seen a success rate of about 2.1% of species being recovered. Um, and at least on this end of it, it's going to allow for, you know, tailoring, tailoring uh, the recovery efforts of, of many of those species. And that's something we haven't really seen. Um, you know, and then there's a number of other changes made along the way. Um, and I think uh, now we're going to see the lawsuits uh, that's pretty much expected 
and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. But we know a lot of uh, folks in agriculture have been unhappy with the Endangered Species Act uh, and the way it's been handled over the years. Uh, So what are you hearing from the ag community on this? Well, you know, Farm Bureau, they came out with a statement the very day that this was finalized, um, and they were quite happy with it. You know, um, the, it basically, I think I think what they enjoy about this, this particular uh, final rule is that it, it basically gives a chance for these species to recover. You know, um, oftentimes, as you know, farmers and ranchers get a bad rap when it comes to the environment and, and critical habitats and, and all these things. Um, but we know that you know, farmers are highly conservational. They're uh, they consider you know the threats to their lands, and they they take care of what they have and, and try to conserve. Um, and so, the American Farm Bureau uh, came out with a statement, kind of that to that effect that you know if we're going to have this act, uh, we need to make it work. And you know, and farmers and ranchers are more than willing to, to do that. It's just that over over the years, um, the way it's been implemented, it's been kind of cumbersome, and it's. Uh, it's made it difficult for landowners uh, to do what they need to do on their land. Do we have some idea of uh, what might be next as far as going on the uh, endangered species list? Well, today uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service did announce there's three possible more species that are uh, they're going to be either classified as endangered or threatened or taken off the list, and one of those is the lake sturgeon. Um, you know, as as you know, the that Particular species is widely uh, thought to be its habitat across the Corn Belt. Uh, some of the upper states too, you know, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, North Dakota, places like that, where it's been known to, to live. Um, so we're going to see what happens with that. It's uh, it's not finalized at this point, but that particular species is uh, kind of up next next for some sort of a listing. We're talking with Todd Neely, DTN reporter. Todd, uh, the biofuels industry uh, really upset with this latest round of uh, 31 waivers to the RFS granted by EPA. Uh, I know they feel like uh, this administration has uh, has turned its back on them, basically, after promising to you know its support, and then these waivers keep coming. Uh, demand loss, gallons uh, not getting reallocated. This is a tough time for the biofuels industry. Yeah, it absolutely is, Mike. And, uh, you know, when that announcement came out Friday, um, you know, I cover, I've been covering EPA for a number of years, and one of the things we've kind of known for a while is that a lot of times uh, the agency puts out an announcement or uh, something big um, late on a Friday. I'm not really sure why that is, but uh, this obviously uh, was highly controversial. You know, it's something that uh, the ag- agriculture and ethanol industries have been watching extremely close. Uh, you know, we had the president uh, commit to at least looking at the waivers program, um, possibly making changes, whatever that might entail. Uh, but in the meantime, when, when the agency announced these 31 new exemptions, uh, it really kind of puts into question what's going on necessarily because, uh, at this point, if, if there's a review ongoing, it, it really makes you wonder if, um, you know, what they're actually looking at. Because obviously, um, you know, this time around, I think there were six six or seven, maybe eight uh, denials. Some of those denials date back to previous years. But um, obviously, you know, EPA is looking at this, and uh, they're not willing to go the full distance yet in, in turning away more of these exemptions. Um, and I don't know what the nature was of, of some of the ones they rejected, but 
uh, I suspect that they're not going to change course. And if um, you know if something's going to be done, it's probably more than likely going to have to be accomplished uh, through the court system. All right, Todd. Thanks for the update. Good to talk with you. Take care. Uh, yeah, you too, Mike. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Well, we'll follow up on that in our next segment. The CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, Donnell Rehagen, joins us. Um, Biodiesel industry has been very hard hit by these RFS waivers. And to get 31 more announced, you can imagine what uh, the reaction is going to be from the National Biodiesel Board. We'll get that reaction next right here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Okay, I only have 15 seconds to tell you about Tavium Plus Vapor Grip Technology, the new dicamba premix herbicide from Syngenta. It controls tough weeds and soybeans like Palmer Amaranth, water hemp, and grass weeds. Actually, we're going to go longer because Tavium lasts longer. So you get all the power of Dicamba plus up to three weeks longer residual control than Dicamba alone. Now time's officially up for tough weeds. Talk to your local Syngenta retailer to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. Tavium plus paper grip technology is a restricted-use pesticide. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. All right, we're going to talk some trade issues with the president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, Dan Hallstrom. Dan, thanks for joining us. Before we get to the situation with China, I want your thoughts on the the agreement reached between the U.S. and the EU to allow more beef into the European Union. What's the significance of that agreement? Yes, I think uh, I think there's several levels of significance with this uh, beef agreement with the EU. Um, number one is that uh, it is one of our highest value destinations for U.S. beef on a per pound basis, and. Uh, what we've been struggling with the last couple of years is that uh, the quota has been overutilized. And, you know, this, this duty-free quota was originally intended for the U.S. as a result of the hormone dispute going back for decades. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. My mom's a breast cancer survivor. The United Breast Cancer Foundation saved her life. Their free breast cancer exam caught the cancer early, and it saved her life. But now the foundation needs your help so they can continue offering free or low-cost breast screening exams, saving more women's lives. Help them by donating your car, whether it's running or not. They'll provide fast, free 24-hour pickup, and you receive a charitable tax deduction, plus the great feeling you'll get knowing your donated car is going to help save more lives. Just call 800-745-3327 to set the wheels in motion. They take cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs, running or not. 
Call 800-745-3327. The United Breast Cancer Foundation needs your help, and your donation could literally save women's lives, helping them catch breast cancer early like they did with my mom. Donate today. 800-745-3327. 800-745-3327. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. EPA continues to grant waivers to the RFS, causing a lot of harm to the biofuels industry. We talked yesterday with Bob Deneen with Renewable Fuels Association. Today, joining us is Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. Donnell, 31 more waivers being granted. Uh, I mentioned yesterday, this is like kicking an industry when it's down. Exactly, and that's uh, what we've been trying to convey to uh, the Trump White House as well. There's opportunities through the RFS to have helped our industry, but instead the choice was made to uh, to harm the industry. The fact that uh, there are 31 more waivers, and the fact that there, also that we have no real clarity or way of knowing what criteria EPA even uses to grant these waivers. I know that's frustrating. It's been frustrating. You know, there's been a little bit more clarity provided over the last couple of years, a little bit more transparency, but so much of the application process by the refiners is covered by uh, supposedly confidential business information. So, yeah, these things are being done basically in the dark of night, and uh, we find out what the uh, impacts are much, uh, much after they're actually granted. Tell us what these waivers are doing as far as demand destruction and the impact on the biodiesel industry. Well, demand destruction is the number one thing, but the, really the, the, the underlying issue is how much uncertainty it, uh, it adds to an already uncertain industry. And so when the EPA is setting a volume and giving us a, a runway to that volume, so they're just now talking about 2020 volumes, and at the same time, they're now granting waivers to 2018 volumes. So, you know, it's undermining uh, a yet-to-be-set, uh, yet-to-be-finalized volume. So there's just uncertainty all the way around. Nobody knows when to believe a number is actually a number. Uh, so our downstream partners, our blenders, our truck stops, nobody really knows what the numbers are that everybody's shooting for, both us on the production side and they on the demand side uh, to meet their obligations. Seems like there's a lot of that going on these days with crop reports and uh, these kind of things. Uh, it's just hard to believe the numbers that are coming out. Um, so I guess it could be somewhat resolved, right, if, if they would ever uh, reallocate those gallons, but there seems to be no indication that's going to happen. Well, there hasn't been, but, I mean, that's going to be a demand that, uh, that we are going to be asking the White House to, to make happen. The EPA is in the middle of their rulemaking for 2020, as I mentioned. That will not be finalized until this fall uh, by November 30th for sure. Uh, so there is an opportunity for uh, the Trump administration to make this right and to take these volumes that they've exempted from these small refiners and to simply add those volumes back into the RVO that they will set this fall for next year. But if they did that and they still keep granting waivers, do we really catch up? Well, that's the issue, isn't it, Mike? And that's what we're trying to convey to them is, 
you know, not only are you, we, we had waivers last year, uh, that, and we now we are, EPA has proposed a flat volume for biomass-based diesel for 2020, and then they're turning around and waiving again. So there's waivers upon waivers upon waivers. So there's a, a multiplication effect uh, for our industry as these waivers continue to grow uh, in volume and in number each and every year. We're talking with Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. Donnell, how many gallons has the biodiesel industry lost due to these waivers? Well, we know uh, numerically uh, in 2017 or 2016 and 2017 for the biodiesel industry, uh, that is about 350 million gallons. Now, to give you some perspective, our entire domestic industry produces about 2.5 billion. So it's well over 10%. Of, uh, of of our of our production was lost just due to those waivers. The waivers granted in eighteen are substantially higher in volume than what we saw in uh, sixteen and seventeen. And so, and there's also no reason, quite frankly, to believe that we won't wouldn't see waivers along these same lines in you know, next year uh, for twenty for the twenty nineteen volume. So. It's a large amount, and it's a large amount of volume. It's a large amount of demand, and as I said again, it's really the uncertainty that is created uh, because of you can't count on the numbers that are coming out of uh, the EPA from a demand perspective. It seems somewhere along the way, <laughs> EPA has lost track. Administrations have lost sight of what the RFS was intended to do, and even some members of Congress have seemed to have lost sight of this too, and that was to help develop and promote a domestic fuels industry, and yet we actions like this uh, fly just in the, uh, in the face of that, just the opposite of what it was intended to do. Uh, exactly, and that's, that's the issue. The RFS was put into place in 2007, signed into law, by the way, by a president from the oil and gas industry. George W. Bush, uh, who saw the need for this and the, the benefits of growing an industry like ours. And so uh, the legislation itself ramped up volumes year on year. Uh, and so here we are now with an EPA who has the opportunity to continue that pattern of growth and instead is choosing to destro- destroy uh, not only the growth, but actually pulling back on the volumes demanded by our industry. I often say that uh, in Washington, they're just not used to legislation actually working. This one was working, and uh, now we've got people tearing it apart. Yeah, it, it was certainly working. The biodiesel, uh, the biomass-based diesel aspect of the RFS is definitely the shining star. We have produced volumes in excess of what the EPA has set year on year. So here we are knowing, absolutely knowing, we can do more than what they are even guessing or suggesting that we can and then they are on top of that, uh, creating flat demand and then uh, undermining that demand with these SREs. So they are taking us backwards at a point in time when we have firmly dis- demonstrated our ability to move forward. So that leaves you with an industry struggling to hang on right now, isn't it? It does. You know, we've actually seen some pretty significant plant closures in the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, this news out of... Uh, uh, the EPA last week, uh, I, I fully expect uh, we will see that uh, that continue with, with with more plant closures as that uncertainty is just consuming some of these businesses that have been struggling without a tax credit, without the uncertainty that that is causing, uh, and just cash flow becoming a huge issue. And so 
again, we really are disappointed, extremely disappointed uh, in the direction this administration and EPA has taken uh, when they had opportunities to help and push our industry forward. Instead, they've chosen to, uh, to stand on our heads. And hard to get those plants back once you've lost them. Well, that's exactly right. They, you know, they have quality people that have lost jobs. Uh, those people aren't going to sit on their couch at home and wait for the plant to open back up. Uh, so even if those plants are fortunate enough to be able to open back up, uh, they are in many ways starting from scratch from a staffing standpoint and hiring and, and skills uh, that they've worked a number of years to develop. And you've already got an ag economy reeling from trade wars and trade disruption, and then you add this to it, it's, a, it's another hit on the, the rural economy. I am, uh, that's the one thing that makes me scratch my head the most. You know, uh, President Trump uh, sat in Iowa a couple of uh, months ago and, and called the American farmers patriots, and he's exactly right. Uh, they've become his allies, the soybean farmers particularly, have become his allies in his fight uh, with China on the trade. And, uh, you know, I hate to see if this is how President Trump's uh, patriots and allies are treated, uh, then I, I hate to see how his enemies were to be treated by the EPA. So, again, to, the chance was there uh, to uh, tip the hat to the soybean farmers who supply our industry so, so well to say, hey, I, I know you're on my team. I'm, I'm the president. I know you're on our team. Let me see if we can't help with this. And instead, they chose to help uh, the bottom lines and the profitability of some of the largest, most profitable companies in the world. So the focus now, try to get these lost gallons reallocated in, with, in 2020 when that announcement comes out for those levels and, and then hope that, and keep pushing that there won't be more waivers to offset those. That's exactly right. I mean, obviously we have some uh, strong support in Congress for the RFS, for the renewable fuels industry. It may be a situation where uh, new legislation is going to be needed to end this EPA debate about whether the uh, RFS should grow or not. Uh, Maybe this needs to be handled legislatively by those who feel strongly in Washington, D.C. about the future of the biodiesel and renewable diesel industry. All right, Donnell, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate uh, you taking your time to be with us. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mike. Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. It's, uh, it's been a rough uh, stretch here for the biofuels industry, and uh, the, the announcement last week of 31 more RFS waivers really, really uh, hits the industry hard at a time when they're already we're already struggling, already reeling, trade tensions and uh, a lot of other issues going on, and the ethanol and biodiesel industries are really struggling. That has a big ripple effect throughout, a negative impact on our rural economy. All right, up next, efforts to find new markets for U.S. soybeans. That's coming up next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section and after dad's back injury. They helped when you were in pain and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Trouble with opioids can start at home with unused medicines, such as pills, patches, and syrups. You can remove the risk and protect your family. Find out how at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Bad theater seats, cheap Halloween masks, my apartment... 
all things with obstructed views. Add to these large trucks and buses. 18-wheelers and large buses have big blind spots, and like my apartment, they don't always have the best view. Bus and truck drivers deal with blind spots around the entire vehicle. Always take care not to ride alongside or too close behind them. Our roads, our safety. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Trending in a mix for the grain and oil seed sector while livestock futures at the Merck trying to bounce after steep selling the last couple of days. Whether or not this bounce sticks could depend on further news coming out about the Tyson Foods plant fire in Kansas. The Trump administration's move to postpone tariffs on $156 billion in Chinese goods is being regarded in Beijing as a step in the right direction. The Treasury market has broadcast a new recession warning, and the Dow does not like it on this Wednesday. For the first time since the financial crisis, the benchmark 10-year Treasury yielded less than the two-year note on Wednesday morning. While next week's Crop tours should provide some additional details on the condition of U.S. crops. Traders still analyzing Monday's WASDE report from USDA. In corn, an hour into Wednesday's session, December new crop up a half at 377. Soybeans, November down three and three quarters, 885 and a quarter. Chicago wheat, September up two and a half at 474 and a half. Kansas City, September up a half cent, 384. Minneapolis spring wheat September up three and a quarter at 506 and a half. Live cattle futures August contract near unchanged up seven cents per hundred weight at $100.62. October at $100 even per hundred weight up 75. Feeder cattle August up $5.45 at $133.17. Lean hog futures October up $2.15 an hour in at 66.70. The Dow down 442 points. Crude oil in New York, September down 223 a barrel. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. So we just talked with the CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, Donnell Rehagen, an industry, this biodiesel industry that's reeling from these RFS waivers that are being granted. And, of course, uh, 
as plants shut down, uh, that's that's loss of market for soybean growers. We know about the situation with China, huge market loss there. So what about the efforts to develop new markets for our soybeans? Let's talk about that now with the CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, Jim Sutter. Jim, good to talk with you again. Uh, I know you're working hard on this, trying to find uh, new markets for our soybeans. Tell us about uh, those efforts. Well, good morning, Mike. Good to talk to you, and thanks for the opportunity, and we certainly are. You know, our focus, we really sort of, if you think about it, we have a bit of a three-pronged focus, trying to build market share in existing markets like we currently have, trying to grow brand new markets, and then trying to help hopefully over time regain our market, to get our foothold back in China. So specifically with regard to gaining market share in existing markets, we had a big event last week in Southeast Asia in Singapore. We celebrated our 40th anniversary of having an office in Singapore, having a, you know, a footprint in that part of the world. And we had buyers representing about 90% of the consumptive demand of soy products and grains in that region attend a big buyers conference event that we did uh, jointly with the U.S. Grains Council in Singapore last week. And it was uh, an opportunity for us to talk about U.S. soy, U.S. grains, of course, they were there as well, but to talk about the U.S. soy advantage and uh, and work with those longtime customers of ours and really try and build the market share. Yeah, what's that's a huge event. Uh, tell us what the follow-up will be to that now. Well, so, of course, the follow-up is, is uh, you know, we had uh, we had uh, roughly 15, I think maybe the number is 17, U.S. export companies represented there as well. So during our event, we, of course, build in plenty of time for networking between the buyers from that region and all of the U.S. exporters. And so hopefully there's a lot of follow-up going on that will result in business between the export companies and the buyers there. And then we also get questions about, you know, things about the nutritional bundle of U.S. soy or various questions that we then have our team on the ground in that part of the world follow up on. So it's really, you know, kind of traditional trying to do the marketing work, uh, you know, get build an education and then make sure we follow up to answer questions. That's really the key follow up part of the, the work we do. Yeah, it's an ongoing dialogue as you build those relationships. Absolutely. We're talking, with, talking with Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council. Jim, we know that even if we weren't in a trade war with China right now, uh, their demand for soybeans, soybean meal, would be down because of African swine fever, and we we know that continues to spread. T- tell us about the impact of, of that uh, epidemic uh, as it continues to spread and how it impacts soybean exports. Well, it's really a worrying event, um, you know, so, of course, we've all heard about it, how it is in China, and, you know, we don't know the exact numbers. There are some people say 50% of the, the hog population has been wiped out. Others people say, you know, it's closer to 30%. In any case, it's a significant number. And what we know is that it's spreading south of there. It's gone into Laos. It's gone into Cambodia. And it's gone into Vietnam. And Vietnam is the one we're really worried about because that is a, that's been a, a big market for U.S. soy, for soy in general. And, and they are strong pork eaters. Uh, so as they have this ASF problem, we're afraid it could, uh, could drop the demand uh, going into Vietnam. So I think, Mike, really, you know, the China situation is kind of what it is. I think they're in the process of getting that under control. I think they will be rebuilding. Uh, and and it, the question is, how long will that take? You know, our experts think it'll be a couple of years before we really get, and maybe even a little longer, 
but a couple of years before we get numbers back up in China. Hopefully in Vietnam they'll be able to control it better. Uh, and I think because I think there we have a bit more, uh, you know, we have some real good practices that are being put in place to try and control the, the spread of the African swine fever, uh, maybe more so than they did in China. But we will see how that goes. But it's something we're watching very closely. And I know that uh, other countries in Southeast Asia, for example, the Philippines, is another large swine producer, a very important market for U.S. soy. We have a super market share there. Uh, and they are, we've been working, trying to give advice, putting them in touch with experts here in the U.S., and the Philippine industry is working very hard to continue to try and maintain their ASF-free status. So it's kind of uh, something we're doing, again, trying to play defense in the markets where it already has taken place and trying to play, uh, try and, and then trying to help the markets that don't have it yet really be proactive and prevent themselves getting an ASF problem in those markets. Jim, the loss of a market the size of China is just such a huge hurdle to try to overcome. And as you work in these other markets, I mean, is it realistic to think you can get enough other markets to make up for the loss of China? Well, you know, that's a really good question. And we have had an initiative over the last year we've called the What It Takes Initiative, and with, with the goal of doing exactly that, doing what it takes to maintain our total export share or our total export volume without having China as a participant. Uh, Fortunately, we have had China as a a small participant this year, so we haven't felt the total brunt of that. You know, it is going to be a real challenge. I don't want to kid you. Um, We've gone through the numbers, and uh, using the most recent USDA statistics for global demand for soy, if we were to have zero shipments to China, and if we were to maintain our total, our total uh, soybean export volume the same as it was in the 17-18, so the last marketing year that was completed in that marketing year, we would need to have a just over 90% market share in all other markets for soybeans. Now, when you say, is that realistic? Um, I think it's a challenge. I think there will be... You know, the, the, I, I think it's a real challenge. Now, maybe we can see more soybean meal exports take place, which would lower that number a little bit. We're continuing to work to try and grow new demand. So maybe some of those markets that USDA didn't capture, we can see some demand growth in. So it's certainly the challenge that our team is working on on the ground, but it is not easy. I don't want to give anybody the idea that we can just snap our fingers and instantly replace that market that we've worked 38 years in China to build and have it potentially just kind of pulled out from underneath us. If South America fills that void in China and takes our place there, does that mean we have up, does that create opportunities in other markets that maybe they were supplying or can they handle all of it? I think in the, certainly in the short term, it creates opportunities for us to go in and backfill in some of those markets. And we've seen that, uh, for example, this year in the EU, the European Union, our market share has grown to about 75% from oh, more, a more normal. We had you know, 35 or 40% of that market. And that was really as, as more of the Brazilian production went to China, we were able to backfill into Europe. My concern, Mike, is the longer this goes on, the more acres we see our South American competitors put into place, Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, we know they are all trying to ramp up their production. Uh, they're out around the world trying to make deals. 
to be long-term suppliers to historically our customers. So I'm just afraid that that really puts us um, at a long-term disadvantage, and, and that's my worry from the long-term ramifications of this. I think that's a huge point, and it's one that I, I keep coming back to and I make over and over. Uh, the, the lasting impact from this situation with China, whenever it's resolved and we look back on it, I think it, it'll be felt years and years from now, Jim, because of what you just said. We created more competition by opening the door for others to uh, jump in there. You're exactly right. That's my worry and has been my worry since day one of this thing, that we, you know, there were some practices that we didn't like that China was doing uh, involving our soybean industry. But um, some of those things, maybe with the benefit of hindsight, it would have been better to try to take on multilaterally and solve rather than just independently. I mean, anyway, we are where we are. We're trying to work through that. But I agree with you. That's our that's our concern for the long term. And our strategy to deal with that is the work we are doing in new emerging markets. So trying to help grow new demand so as we eventually maybe have a smaller share in china we're hopeful that we will see new demand coming on in markets like uh, myanmar nigeria pakistan bangladesh places that are not big consumers today but in a few years time or five to ten years time we hope that they can be much bigger consumers and that new demand will allow for increased production in South America, plus all that we can produce here in the U.S. to be consumed. In markets like that, Jim, while the need, no doubt, would be there, what about their ability to purchase, their ability to pay? Well, you bring up the obvious the obvious situation. Um, I was in Nigeria uh, earlier this year. In the month of May, I, took, I participated in the first U.S. soy mission uh, with our USEC group going there and working with, uh, the, the, there's a small crushing industry there, there's a, there's a growing livestock industry, and they would love to be consuming more U.S. soybean, either bringing in beans and crushing them there or importing meal. But as you say, it's a question of uh, how, how are they going to pay for that. So it's uh, one of these things that over time, uh, their economy is improving as oil prices are moved, have moved higher. That helps them. They, they're pretty much a petro economy, um, as an example. But yeah, I mean that's the problem in these countries. They have to develop their economies to be able to help them grow. So that's something where we're looking at the places where we see economic activity, mm-hmm. and that's part of what drives us to want to go to those markets. Yeah, big challenge. Keep up the good work, Jim. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Have a great day. You too. Jim Sutter, CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council. Up next, the latest ag equipment sales numbers. Stay with us here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, (laughs) tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. 
I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. <clears throat> Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. <sighs> Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, Immigration Reform, Reducing Regulations, Trade, New Technology, as well as Infrastructure and Health Care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. In the fight against resistant weeds, you need to be prepared to fight back with the best possible herbicide rotation available. Kick off your soybean spray program with Syngenta's pre-emergence residual herbicides, Boundary or Broadaxe XC. Follow that with the hard-hitting post-emergence knockdown and residual herbicide Flexstar GT 3.5, and you'll be giving your soybean fields the protection they need to win the fight against weeds. To learn more, visit your local Syngenta retailer. Always read and follow label instructions when using Syngenta products. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you, and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. Well, let's get an update on the ongoing battle with soybean cyst nematode. Joining us now is University of Illinois plant breeder Dr. Brian Deers. Brian, thanks for joining us. I was just thinking in this year with all the crop production challenges, SCN is another challenge, a profit robber, a yield robber that uh, sometimes flies under the radar, just not as obvious, not as uh, easily seen uh, as a, a weather event. 
That's absolutely correct. Here in Illinois, where we have very good soils, we often will have losses from SEM, and people won't, won't see any above-ground symptoms. Plants will look very healthy, but yet there'll be losses due to SEM. What you can do is just take soil samples, send them to a testing lab, and they'll at least tell you whether or not SEN is present in the field, and they'll also tell you how big of a problem it is. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, each month we take a look at the latest ag equipment sales numbers, and they they tell us a lot about uh, how farmers are feeling about their own operations, the ag economy, where we're at, uh, any confidence uh, moving forward. And we've been talking for some time now how the numbers have held uh, have been, you know, a pleasant surprise how strong they have held, considering the economy that uh, being the way it has been for agriculture. And uh, those economic troubles uh, certainly continue to be with us. So are they reflected in the latest numbers, the July numbers? Let's find out as we talk with Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Uh, what do the latest numbers tell us? Well, thanks for having me on, Mike. Uh, the, the numbers of July are, uh, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, I think uh, as expected, the July numbers for tractor and combine we saw a little bit of a decline across the board in all in all categories, um, and it's you know sort of what we've been predicting for some time as reflective of just this this malaise that's in the ag economy. If you want to go into some specifics, uh, you know under forty horsepower tractors were kind of flat, you know year over year, uh, month over month. Uh, the uh, over forty horsepower tractors, uh, you know we saw kind of a mixed bag. One hundred hundred plus, we saw a decline of about ten percent. And uh, articulated full saw a decline of about five percent. So we're seeing, you know, sort of that softness that was that was uh, expected that we've kind of been talking about for a while. But we're still over the five-year average uh, on on all those categories. And as you look at the year as a whole, it's about flat to this time last year. Market facilitation payments will help, but there is so much uncertainty about this year's crop and what uh, what's going to be harvested. Uh, that adds to the uncertainty you were talking about uh, showing up in these numbers. Yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, that is the name of the equipment uh, purchases, is that you've got to feel pretty good about, you know, whether you're going to be able to, to you know, make a payment for the five, ten-year uh, lifespan of a piece of equipment before you make those purchases, and I think that uncertainty is really, really playing into it. So, you know, those, those uh, market payments uh, that are, you know, that are, you know, coming out there, I think that, that might have a small impact on the uh, on the equipment sales, but I think that's really more just to sort of help. It helps more with the uh, you know the, the inputs and and just sort of you know, overall making uh, making farmers feel better about their about their income. But some of the fundamentals have got to get corrected before you see some major improvements in in the uh, uh, tractor and combine sales market. So how so how are folks in the equipment industry dealing with this? Well, we've been, again, as I kind of said, we've expected this uh, sort of malaise to, to be there for a while, and it, 
I think uh, I think our folks have, have knew that this was coming, and they've they've appropriately you know managing the production supply so that uh, you know the, the price equals the demand or the supply equals the demand, which I think is really important to make sure that we're not flooding the market with equipment, but also that making sure that the that the value uh, uh, that the farmers receive is absolutely what they're what they're paying. So that's certainly happening. I think the other thing that, that we are we as an association and really all all trade associations are, are doing right now is keeping pressure on politicians to make sure that we can do everything we can possible to have those uh, commodity demands uh, up, whether that's renewable fuels or whether that's putting pressure on the administration to, to resolve trade issues, whatever it might be. I mean, I think that's really kind of the, the critical issue for all of all of agriculture, but specifically in the in the machinery sector. Is anything we can do to remove that uncertainty? I think absolutely helps, and some of that is just putting pressure on our elected officials to, to, to you know, resolve some of the issues that are ongoing. Yeah, the news on those fronts has not been too good here in the last uh, week or so. It certainly hasn't been. Certainly, uh, you know, I don't want to go too into the details on trade, but uh, you know, I think there's some there's some real concern out there of what what the demand looks like, you know, long term, and what the trade patterns look like. I think. Uh, you know, we we all know that we've got a lot of competitors around the world that are that are anxious to to take over our lead of soybeans, and and uh, you know these these trade negotiations don't necessarily do a whole lot to to uh, uh, you know it kind of puts a little bit little bit more in their favor right now. Uh, but I I also am an optimist and say that you know, this too will pass, and that uh, you know we in the United States and our farmers in the United States do a pretty good job of of producing corn soybeans that are pretty uh, pretty affordable and able to be sold around the world as well as some of the domestic supply and demand that uh, uh, that exists whether it's in renewable fuels or animal or, or whatever you might have it uh, you know we do a pretty good job of growing food here and it seems like there's always a way for us to make a little bit of money on uh, in the farms as well uh, the uh, sales numbers in Canada how are they tracking well Canada has been been pretty soft been pretty soft for the last six months and uh, and the july numbers are really no no different we saw you know a month over month decline about 10 percent across the board when you look at combines we saw a pretty sizable drop in combine sales in, in canada for the month of july and that's really representative of the canadian combine market is down about 25 percent uh for the whole year so there's some there's some real softness in in canada I think uh, you know we've got we've got exchange rates issues. We've got the uncertainty with USMCA, and as you as uh, as you know, you know we in the United States we uh, we worry about ag policy that that affects how farmers make money and what crops they plant. Multiply that by a by a factor of X, and that's that's Canadian agriculture. And with some of the uncertainty that exists both in the United States and Canada, I think that really is having sort of a a softening effect on the on the Canadian ag tractor and combine markets i look forward to when we do these uh these conversations when things are going strong again i look forward to that it was a lot more fun about 12 months ago mike when we were talking <laughs> I know. about seeing record highs and record highs we're going to get there again i'm optimistic uh but all uh, right again we got we got to get these uncertainty clouds uh, out of the way before that happens again all right thanks kurt thanks for the update we'll talk to you next month thanks much Take care. Kurt Blade, Senior Vice President, Ag Services for the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. All right, coming up tomorrow, uh, what are the uh, presidential candidates uh, saying about uh, 
their ag policies. We'll talk about that. We'll also look at more market reaction to the USDA August crop report, and we'll preview the uh, Farm Progress Show coming up in just a few days. So hope you'll join us tomorrow here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life. But there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it. But only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accident survivors waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. Sometimes life is wonderful. And sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private Healthcare is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready, and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is $35,000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. 